Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. I am the lead pastor around here. Appreciate you guys coming on out on this Sunday morning, tuning in, I should say. So I don't know if you've sort of thought about this. I don't know if you've realized this, but we've been doing this now, this virtual church thing for six months do you realize that? I mean, have you, has it dawned on you how much time has gone by? And in the six months that we've been doing virtual church, we've celebrated Easter, okay? What else? We had Memorial Day weekend. We had Fourth of July. We had Labor Day weekend. Well, I don't know if you looked at your calendars at all, but next week, which is September 20th, is a big milestone for this church. It's our Fifth anniversary. I can't even. Can you believe that? I cannot believe that we have been doing this thing for five years when there were some people who said we wouldn't even make it a year. But thank God, literally, thank God, here we are. We're doing our thing. We're having fun. Now, here's something that's even more exciting about our fifth year anniversary. We get to celebrate it in person. That's right, baby. We're back. We are back. We are live and direct in the museum. It, it, I just can't believe the day is here. I mean, we've been talking about it. We've been praying about it, but we are going to be back in that museum. It's amazing. Thank God. So let's just let me, give me a couple of minutes to kind of talk to you about what that's going to look like for us, because it's going to be different for some time. Um, the first thing to recognize is that the museum is actually closed down. It, they are not open at all to the public. And because the museum itself is not open, we will not be in the theater that we usually use. Instead, we're going to be in the IMAX. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen the IMAX, but the IMAX is humongous. I mean, it's easily 70-foot tall ceilings. I mean, the screen is like 72 feet. So I'm going to be huge. <laughs> okay. But um, it's huge ceilings, super comfortable seats. It's like stadium seating. So you guys are going to be actually looking down on me, which most of you do anyway from your high horses. Um, <laughs> but so when we're in sort of phase one of reopening as a church, a couple of things. Number one, for the time being, we're only going to do one service. Normally we used to do two. We're going to do one. And we're going to do it at 9 a.m. because the museum needs sufficient time to decontaminate uh, before they open back up. Number two, for the time being, no kids programming, okay? There, there's no child care. There's no, there's no kids programming. Now, every single week, we're going to sort of monitor the situation in terms of what the city is going to allow us to do, this, that, and the other. Um, but right now, no kids programming. So what does that mean for you families out there? Well, you're welcome to join us. We, we, would, we would love to have your kids in the audience with you. Don't worry about noise. I mean, it's a museum. We're used to distractions, right? Remember the old days? Um, bring them in. Not a problem. We would love to have them. Some more COVID protocol. Um, when you arrive, this is you know, by order of the city, when you arrive, your temperatures will be taken. So our volunteers will be at the door. We're going to take your temperature. You've had this done before. Number two. This is a big deal. Masks must be worn all the time. I, now, listen, I know, you know, with our church, with, with this country, we got people all over the mask spectrum, if you will. Um, 
but it's not an option for us. We have to wear it the whole time, even when you're in your seat. All right. And I know that might be a little bit annoying at times, but it's a small price for us to pay uh, in order for us to gather. And then lastly, we're going to have ushers. Maybe we'll call them maitre d's, class it up a little bit. But we're going to have some of our volunteers that will escort you to your seats to make sure that we can get everybody in the proper seats with the proper social distancing. Now, an email is going to go out this week. We're going to fill you in on all the details, but you're going to park in the same lot, nine o'clock. We're going to start right on time. I know you'll be there. Um, and it should be great chance for us to see each other again, give some of these, you know, elbow bumps, social distance, that kind of thing, and to celebrate our fifth anniversary. But for today, we are wrapping up this series that we've been calling BC. It's our summer series. Uh, it's been nine weeks. I don't know if you realize that, but it's, I mean, it's kind of flown by, maybe. But it, it's been a good series, I think even for me, because I have learned a lot researching all of these characters. Because every single week, I don't know if you've, maybe you've missed it, but every single week what we've been doing is we've been talking about what happened before it all happened. Meaning, what happened those thousands of years before Jesus Christ stepped onto the scene. And every single week, we're taking a look at key figures from the Old Testament. We've been learning about their lives, and we've been finding out how their life can impact and perhaps even influence our own. So today, I saved uh, what I believe to be the most significant person for last. Now, this person we're going to talk about today um, is pretty much the most important person in the Jewish faith, outside of Abraham of course. This individual figures prominently in the Old Testament, and this person actually figures prominently in the New Testament as well. This individual is the reigning champ in the Sunday School Hall of Fame, and I am speaking, of course, about David. David. So who was David? David was a gifted musician. He was a, a gifted writer. He was a phenomenal king. He was a warrior. He was a leader, but he wasn't perfect, all right? Um, he actually had someone murdered, not good. He struggled with infidelity, that's an issue. And he also battled with depression, which I think a lot of us um, know what that's about. But in spite of all of those things, God loved him. And he was said to have, a, he was after God's own heart, which is, I mean, wouldn't we all love to hear that about ourselves? Truth is, when it comes to David, you could do an entire series. You could do eight, nine, ten weeks on this guy. But that's not what this series BC is about. We just kind of touch on a couple of things. So what I want to do today is touch on two stories. Um, I want to touch on one real quick. And then I want to land on a big one. And I think you know what I mean when I say a big one. So the best way for me to introduce David to you, I think, is to first talk about the political landscape of the time. So when God established Israel, all right, sort of the, the people group Israel, the Jewish people, he established it as a theocracy. What's a theocracy? Simply, a theocracy is the idea that God is king, okay? God is sort of the king of the Jewish people. He comes up with rules and commandments and laws, and we've seen all that before, and um, he sort of hands them down to his people through an intermediary. We've seen him use prophets. We've seen him use judges. Christina and Adam talked about sort of judges and prophets. And that worked great for hundreds of years. But eventually, 
Israel started to look to the left and started to look to the right, and they began to look at other nations and tribes and countries, and they wanted what everybody else had. They wanted a king. So, I mean, think about that for a second. They would rather be led by a human than our God. So God gave them what they want, okay? And, And he says to his current prophet, Samuel, he says to Samuel, do everything the people request of you, for they are rejecting me not you, right? He's pulling the old, it's not you, it's me kind of thing. He goes, they're, they're, Samuel, don't go down on yourself. It's not about you, it's me. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Can you imagine saying that about God? I'm just reading these words now and it's <laughs> unbelievable. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, remember with Moses way back when? Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. So, if it's a king they want, it's a king they'll get. So God anoints a man named Saul to be the very first king of Israel. And truthfully, he's a great king. I mean, he's honestly, you go back and read it, he's everything you could possibly want. He's tall, dark, handsome, he's a great politician, he's a great warrior, he's charismatic. The whole package. Saul was a great king. Until he wasn't. Uh, Because eventually, Saul started to listen to man rather than God. And that's a problem. That's just a, that's generally not a good thing, all right? And and so God pulled the plug on him. He pulls the plug. He tells Samuel, I need somebody else. This guy, this is not working for me anymore. Read it. He says, I have rejected him, Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. So Samuel heads out to this small backwater town named Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem, and he finds Jesse. And Jesse takes him back to his house to go scout out his sons to find out which one of these guys is going to be the king. When they arrive, we read, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, oh, surely, surely this has got to be the Lord's anointed because he sees this guy, Eliab. You read the scripture. I'll paraphrase it for you. But basically it says, again, this guy is tall, dark, and handsome. He essentially looks like Saul. And in Samuel's mind, well, this is what a king's supposed to look like. So this has got to be the king. But God famously says something. God says to Samuel, hey, listen, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And isn't that an encouraging word for all of us? I mean, particularly as Americans, we live in this nation that is obsessed with physical appearance, but God's saying, I don't care what you look like. I don't. I don't care about your education. I, I, I don't care where you live. I don't care about your skin color. I only care about your heart. So Eliab, you're not the guy. And so Jesse brings in another son. That's not him. He brings in another son. No, that's not him either. Nope, nope, nope. He's just going through the whole roster. 
Well, Samuel's getting a little nervous because he knows he's supposed to find the, the, the next king here, and, but it, he seemingly has gone through all of Jesse's sons. So he pulls Jesse aside. He goes, Jesse, let me just ask you something. It's a little awkward, but um, is there any chance that you've forgotten anybody? I mean, God told me that one of your sons is going to be the next king. Is there any chance that maybe you left somebody out? Jesse goes, well, there is still the youngest, um, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Now, here's something interesting. In our scripture, it says um, the youngest. But when you go back and look at the original language that Jesse actually said, he, he used a word that really means something more like unimportant. So he's like, well, we, we, I do have another son, but he's unimportant. And he's out in the fields with the goats. And Samuel's like, well, I get it. I know what you're saying, but I got to see them all. So Jesse calls in David. And when David walks into the room, the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. Bingo, we got our guy. And you got to love God. I mean, he, he, again, we see that he is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care about outward appearance. He doesn't care about age. I mean, he, he, David at this point is like 15. And he goes as far as to choose someone that's considered unimportant in their own family. So as David stood there among his brothers, who I'm sure are not happy in the moment, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. All right, let's just stop for a second and recap because I've said a lot and I've said it rather quickly. Saul, he's the king of Israel. God doesn't like him anymore. David has now been anointed as the new king of Israel, but he is not yet the king of Israel, okay? He's too young. He needs some training, all right? So time goes on, and David actually begins to enter into the service of Saul. Starts working for him at the palace, and, and, and it's unusual, really. Saul kind of has almost manic, depressive uh, bouts, and the only way that he can feel better is if David plays the harp for him. It's strange. You've got to go read it for yourself. So David's in the palace working for Saul. Saul has no idea that David's been anointed to become the next king, and a war breaks out. The big bad Philistines uh, try to attack the Israelites. And this leads us to the most famous story in the Old Testament, in my opinion, David and Goliath. You knew we were going to go there. From, you knew it, right? You gotta. So most likely every single one of you have heard this story. And if not, just wait. It's a, it's a great one. Kids love this story, um, but it's much more than a kid's story. Uh, at a deeper level, what you're going to see is that what it's really about is how we approach the giants, shall we say, in our lives. And these giants are, they're different for all of us. They could be issues in our lives. They could be things that we struggle with. You know, maybe it's a home situation. Maybe it's a, a work issue. Maybe, maybe it's a, a school issue. Maybe, maybe God is calling you to do something really great, but it just seems like everything is, is against you. You know what I'm talking about? Well, the story of David and Goliath prepares us for those moments and gives us perspective on how to handle those giants and how to think about those giants when they begin to loom large in our life. So let's see what this story is all about. 
1 Samuel 17, 1 and 2. Now, the Philistines, it says, gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. All right, so that's a lot of geographical detail. We have no idea what they're talking about, but I got a picture to show you because it'll help give you a little bit of context for the story today. So here's a picture. I don't know if you can see this. It's kind of small, but this is an actual picture of the area that they're talking about in the scripture right here. And sort of off to the right, it's on a green screen, so I don't really know where it is. It's going to be over here somewhere. Off to the right is Saul's camp. They're on one hill. And on the other side, probably nearer to me over here, is going to be the Philistine camp. And in the middle is the Valley of Elah. It's the battlefield. That, this valley floor here is where everything's going to go on today. Got it? All right. Enter Goliath. Verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. All right, let's stop and talk about this height kind of a thing. Because if you are a lifelong Christian, okay, if you kind of grew up going to church, grew up going to Sunday school, you hear this nine foot tall thing and you don't really even think about it. It's kind of like, oh, yep, not a problem. But if you're new to Christianity, or if you're not a Christian, um, or even if you're just a little bit skeptical, you hear this and you go, come on, really? Like over nine feet tall? What are you, what are you doing to me? So how tall was he really? The difficult thing about figuring out exactly how tall he was is that the Bible doesn't use meters and the Bible doesn't use feet and inches. It uses things like cubits and all this kind of stuff. So I looked at several commentaries. And I am seeing estimations of his height being anywhere from like seven and a half feet tall all the way up to 10 feet tall. Okay. Bottom line is this guy's an absolute unit. Okay. He's a beast. He's big, no matter how tall he actually is. And then we learn about his armor. Check out his armor. It says he wore a bronze helmet and a bronze coat of mail uh, that weighed 125 pounds. So that seems kind of meaningless to us. Like how much is you know, 125 pounds? Is that a lot? So when you think about a medieval knight, because that's kind of what we think about when we think of knights and armor and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about their suit of armor, but the chain mail they wore underneath that little you know, mesh kind of a thing, that's averaging 30 pounds. So the average man wore a 30-pound chainmail. He's wearing 125 pounds. So that'll give you a little bit of insight into his size. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam tipped with an iron spearhead, and that's important, which weighed 15 pounds. All right, so this is a lot of detail really when you think about it, when it comes to his armor and his weaponry. In fact, this is the most detail given in the Old Testament about armor and about weapons. Why? Why do they go into such detail? Well, several reasons. Number one, 
to further underscore just how massive Goliath is. Okay? This is a big dude. Uh, we also learned that he had iron. That's important because at this point in the world, iron was basically a new innovation. Not every nation had iron. Guess who didn't have iron? The Israelites. They basically had wooden, you know, clubs. So this paints a picture of a big bad army with a big bad giant who had big bad weapons. But theologians believe that this sort of highly detailed section on Goliath's external advantages, shall we say, actually serves as an object lesson um, about something that we were taught earlier, that God doesn't judge by outward appearances. So when it comes to our giants, neither should we. So it says that Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. So he's yelling across that valley of Allah. You can picture it in your mind. Why are you all coming out to fight? Must be a southerner. Why are you all coming out to fight? He said, I am the Philistine champion. There's that word again. But you are only servants of Saul. So let's stop for a moment and talk about this word champion because it's actually a pretty important word. Now, as English speakers, when we hear the word champion, we think he's got a lot of victories, right? Got a lot of trophies, and he does, okay? That is accurate. This is, this is a, a man who has won a lot of battles, but Goliath didn't use our English word champion. In fact, the word that he used is best translated into English as a man between the two. What? What is that? A, a man between the two. What does that mean? What Goliath is indicating, and we've chosen the word champion here, but what Goliath is indicating here is that he is known as a representative fighter, a representative fighter. And he lays out what that means because the Israelites didn't know. He says, choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slave. So that is what representational fighting is. It's one-on-one, -on -one, mano y mano. Instead of two armies slugging it out, each side sends one guy. Now, here's something interesting. When it comes to representative fighting, there is a religious component to it. The Philistines believed that whichever side had the strongest God, their fighter would win. Oh, so, well, if that's the case, I mean, it really wouldn't matter if Goliath is like 100 feet tall with machine guns because if it's our God versus the pagan God, well, then the battle's already won. You got nothing to worry about, right? And yet, when Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and they were deeply shaken. Think about this. After everything that Israel has seen and experienced, I mean, everything that we've covered in this series, just you yourself think back. I mean, the victories, the miracles, all that stuff. You would think that they would have all the confidence in the world. And yet, they're terrified. And deeply shaken. I think this speaks to the fact that humans have very short memories, particularly 
when it comes to the things of God. I mean, we ourselves, right? We, 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 could, we could go our whole lives with God at our side. He could, he could be with us, give us victory after victory after victory, and yet the sound of one voice can shut us down. Goliath, we read, taunts them relentlessly for 40 days. It says morning and night, which means all day long. Who do you think you are? Why do you even try? You're wasting your time. You see, the enemy's goal is to fill you with fear and strip away your confidence. I mean, Israel was dealing with Goliath. We're all dealing with something else, but ultimately, we all battle the same enemy. That's Satan. So let me ask you this. Is there a struggle in your life right now where it seems like every morning and every evening, all day long, the enemy yells, why even line up for battle? Give up. It's useless. That marriage? Pfft, you're kidding me, right? Come on. No, that's not going to work. She didn't love you anymore. He doesn't love you anymore. You screwed up, my friend. Uh-uh. They're never going to forgive you. Stop. Come on. Give up. Pack it in. Why are you even trying? Or, oh, oh, look who's back in the arms of addiction. How many, try, how many years you've been trying to quit? Yeah, not going to happen. You're embarrassing yourself. You, if you could have stopped, you would have stopped. But you can't. So keep going. Take another drink. Take another. Listen, I could go all day long. Right? I could do all day long going over all of our various giants because we all have giants in our lives, don't we? Yeah. And if we're not careful, the words of the enemy, the words of those giants can find their way into our heart. And if we lose sight of the fact, as the Israelites did, that the giant might be big, but our God is bigger. If we lose sight of that, <sighs> We're going to lose the battle. Story continues. We learn that David's brothers are on the front line of this battle. And Jesse, the father, asks David to go run some supplies out to his brother. So David sort of makes his way through the camp, makes his way through the ranks, and gets himself up to the front line, and, and he finally finds his brothers. And it says that as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, just in case you forgot, came out of the Philistine ranks. Here he goes again. Then David heard him for the first time shout his usual, I love that, his usual taunt to the army of Israel. Now, as soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Okay, so the army is now running away. And they're kind of slamming into David as, the, you know, as they're running past him. And meanwhile, David's standing there. He hears exactly what they hear, but he's not afraid. In fact, he's offended. And he says, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? Who is this guy? Who is this joker? That he is allowed, I love that word, that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Basically, he's like, where's everybody going? What have you guys been doing for 40 days that you're allowing this pagan to insult our God? What's going on here? Can somebody explain this to me? See, my question is, why did David have such a different reaction 
to the situation. Because what you see determines how you respond. All Israel saw was the giant. I mean, it's true. I mean, all day long, his voice is in their head, dominating their thoughts. So when they looked across that valley of Elah, all they saw was a giant. But David, all he saw was his God. Story continues. But when David's oldest brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. So we know Eliab. We've met Eliab. Eliab is the one that Samuel thought looked like a king, but God rejected Eliab. And God chose his runt brother, David. And now his runt brother is walking around like Mr. Tough Guy saying he's going to take out Goliath. Eliab looks at David and he goes, what are you doing around here anyway? Right? What about those few sheep Right? you're supposed to be taken care of? I know all about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle, all right? Go, go home, go away, ouch. So clearly Eliab is bitter and he's jealous. But here's why I just wanted to point this out to you. There are many people in this world, and maybe you're one of them, that are in bondage because they have the voice of a family member in their ear. You think God's going to use you? Who do you think you are? And what's so interesting is that the closer that David gets and the closer that we get to serving God, the louder those voices get. So word gets back to Saul that there's this kid, David. And I don't know what Saul learned. I don't know what the report was that he heard. I don't know if he heard, hey, listen, there's this kid, pretty brave, wants to go fight Goliath. Or maybe he heard, boss, we got this kid. He's, not, he's just making it so much worse for us already. Can you do something? Whatever the case may be, Saul calls David in, gets him into the tent. But David starts the conversation. He looks at Saul and he goes, hey, listen, don't worry. Don't worry about the Philistine. I'll go fight him. <laughs> you gotta love this guy. I mean, this probably 17-year-old at this point is basically trying to minister to the king. He, he's essentially trying to calm down the army that he's not old enough to even be in. He goes, Saul, King Saul, listen, I got this. I'll, I'll, I'll go take care of this, Goliath. You don't worry. You sit here. Saul looks at him and goes, don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. And he's been a man of war since youth. So first of all, first his brothers ridicule him. Now the king ridicules him. He doesn't give up. Persistence says, he says, king, listen, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. All right. And when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club. And I rescue the lamb from its mouth. And if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw, and I club it to death. Yikes, okay. And, and I've done this to both lions and bears. I don't have to do it to this pagan Philistine too. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. And the reason David can have this confidence, he says, is because the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. You see, unlike Saul, unlike the army, 
David has not forgotten what God has done for him in his past. So with that in mind, let me pose a question to you. What are your lions and bears? Think about that for a second. What are some of those past experiences in your life that when things looked scary, when things looked tough, and then all of a sudden, God showed up in a major way? What what are some of those things in your life? See, I believe that we all have these sort of personal, even private little victories with God in order to build our confidence in him. When it comes to those lions and bears in our, in our past, I also think that God has given us those private battles, I'll call them, in preparation for greater things. You see, God's not going to go send David to go fight Goliath without prep work, okay? Just like God's not going to put you up against some giant without you and he building some personal history together. I mean, to this end, God says something really cool in Jeremiah. He he says to Jeremiah, look, if you get tired while racing against people, how can you go race against horses? God's like, look, I got big things lined up for you in this life, but we got to do some groundwork first. We got to build your strength. We got to build your confidence. We have to build your faith. What do we need to do? Well, we we need to pay attention for it and see it and remember it when it happens. So David does that, and he lays out his case as to why he can handle Goliath. And amazingly, Saul finally consented. He goes, all right, go ahead, and uh, may the Lord be with you. Now, say what you want about Saul, but this took faith. Because think about this for a second. He is sending a boy to fight a giant who, if he loses, and let's be honest, all right? If he loses, it's all over. Literally, it's all over. Israel done. Army destroyed. Wives and kids at home, they're going to be slaves. And yet, in spite of all that, Saul says, okay, you can fight Goliath. But there's a caveat. You got to wear my armor when you go out in that battlefield. It says, then Saul gave David his own armor. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a sort of step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. So what's so interesting is that, you know, Saul's asking him to wear this armor that's not really helping him at all. I mean, he's not brave at all. He's hiding in his tent, and yet he wants David to wear it. But David looks like a five-year-old now, basically walking around in his dad's shoes. So David goes, look, I I can't go in these. All right, thank you so much, but this is not going to work for me. I'm just not used to them. David's like, look, this armor, it might work for you. This armor might be a, a part of your faith journey with God, but it's not a part of mine. Because when I fought those lions and bears, I wasn't wearing armor. And so I can't wear it now. So David took them off again. And he picked up five smooth stones from a stream. And he put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed with only his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started off across the valley to fight the Philistines. He's walking across the valley, and Goliath spots this kid coming his way. And Goliath starts hurling 
insult Adam. It's like that scene at a Seinfeld when George breaks up with Marlene, right? It's like, son of a bang, son of a boom, all right? And then David kind of gets into the act a little bit. He goes, you come to me, this is David speaking now, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. He goes, today, the Lord will conquer you. And I'll kill you. I'll cut off your head. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. You see, David knew all along that this battle belonged to God. He knew that the reason this battle was going to take place was to bring glory to God. And, and we've seen this in the past. We've seen, right? We've seen this. And we know that God loves it when the odds are stacked against him. And I would say, in this battle, the odds seem to be stacked against him. So it continues. It says, um, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and the Goliath stumbled and fell face down in the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over, pulled out Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. One of the greatest stories in the entire Old Testament. Kids love it. Adults love it. So what do we do with it? What's the practical? If it's your first time uh, checking us out here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So a couple things for this week. The first thing that I want to sort of put on your radar is, is this idea that Goliath wasn't born a giant. Okay, he didn't come out huge. At least I pray he didn't. His poor mother. Okay, so at one point he was small, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew. Now, many times, many of us get involved with activities or attitudes where at first we go, eh, it's not a big deal. I can handle this. I got this. But slowly, they grow, and they grow, and they turn to the giants, and we lose control. So let me just say this to you right now. If you are someone who's sort of in the beginning stages of something, I mean, if you are right now sort of playing with fire, so to speak, run away. Honestly, run away. I mean, if, if it seems like you're looking at alcohol, a little bit more than you used to. If, if, you've, if the idea of having an affair is now becoming like a, a real potential reality in your life, run. Don't, don't even get involved. Don't let that giant grow. Second of all, don't believe the taunts. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life, but what I do know is that the voice of the enemy can get pretty loud. And if we let that voice enter our heart, soon 
it could start to come out of our own mouth and we can begin to spiral. Listen, Satan only has so much power in the life of a Christian. He, he knows that. He, he knows ultimately this is a losing battle for him. He can't touch your salvation, thank God. But he can try his hardest to mess you up. And if he can get into your head, then he can take you out of the game. Okay? He can render you seemingly useless to God. And, and we don't want to get there in our lives. Okay? So remember, they're just words. You don't have to believe them. And lastly, I would love for you to begin to name your lions and bears. When, when David was presented with a challenge, he was able to immediately name his lions and bears. He could list off why he could trust God. Can you? Honestly, could you? Last week, I challenged you to explore your journey with God. Well, this is part of it. Don't lose sight of those past victories with God because they happened for a reason. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity to meet today virtually, Lord. I want to thank you that over the last six months, God, you've given us the ability to, to still worship Jesus, to grow deeper in our faith in spite of the fact that we could not be together, God. And I want to publicly thank you that starting next week, we can be back together. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we celebrate our fifth anniversary. I pray that you would be with us in the coming weeks and months, that you would keep us safe, that you allow us to grow together spiritually, Lord, and we would be able to change this city and point to you and give you glory. But I also, Lord, want to pray for everybody today because I know that since we're all human, we all have giants in our lives. We all have these things that Oh, are calling us out that are scary looking Lord and, and perhaps we've allowed their voices to rattle around in our heads and to dominate our thoughts for too long but I pray God that today we would realize that this is not a battle that we have to fight that ultimately Lord the victory is yours and I pray, God, that you would embolden each and every single one of us to look back over our lives, to look at your promises, to look at the victories that you have given us, to see that you have been with us all along and that you have protected us, God, and that you will be with us in this battle against our enemies. And we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.